they are going out of the sanctuary, if you would join me by taking God's word and opening to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Highlighting again the speedy progress that I am making through this gospel record. If you were in the Sunday school class, you heard a testimony about Matthew Henry, and I was observing some of the comments made about Matthew Henry's ministry. It said that by the end of his ministry, he had taken his congregation through the whole Bible two times. <laughs> Not going to happen here. I'm sorry. I'm probably going to die long before that happens, I'm afraid. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus did go up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How can this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, as we turn our attention now to this new chapter in John's gospel, we pray that by your Spirit you will give to our hearts and minds understanding. And Father, I pray that you would work in the will of each one of us, that we would apply these things that we would practice these things, that we would be sanctified by what we learn from your word. Give me the ability to speak this morning and in a way that is clear and understandable, that's accurate to the truth of your word. But we ask that by your spirit as well, your heart, our hearts will be attuned to the word of God this morning, transformed, acknowledged, and, uh, and Father, filled with your presence as we learn together from Christ our Savior. I pray as well for those this morning that are yet contrary to Christ, without Christ, without faith in the gospel, that, Father, you would do the work in the heart that only you can accomplish and that you would be glorified because of it. In Christ we pray these things. Amen. The music this morning was so appropriate to our text, especially that last song, Jerusalem, because it's pointing our hearts and minds to the cross. And as you open up John chapter 7, you can see clearly that's the direction we're headed in our study. That is where John the Apostle is taking us. He's taking us to Calvary. And it is his emphasis, once again, that we know this Savior. We know who he is. We know what he came to accomplish. And knowing we would believe, as John writes in the 20th chapter, that's his purpose for giving us this gospel. And I think it can be easy for us to see Jesus as a Savior in that the cross is such a vital work for our souls. And that is so important to maintain as we study John. But we can be a bit forgetful, perhaps, that Jesus Christ is also a great teacher. We saw last week and the week before 
that Jesus is the greatest of evangelists. And so in his life, he sets before us an example that we can follow. We're not all called to preach from a pulpit or to stand up in front of a Sunday school room. But we're all called to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can look at Jesus as the preacher of that gospel and learn from him. By the same token, Jesus is this great teacher. And it's sometimes easy for us to miss as we're focusing on his saviorship that we can forget he is a great discipler of men, a great teacher of the word of God. We don't always see that in John's gospel because his emphasis is on faith and non-faith, believing and the unbeliever, and presenting Christ in his deity and his humanity and his sacrifice. But Jesus is also the great discipler of men's souls. And I have to say that because here at the beginning of chapter 7 and in verse 1, John just glances over that reality. And we're going to see that in our study this morning. But John 7 takes us in a significant turn in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We have just witnessed Christ as he proclaimed the gospel there in the synagogue in Galilee, in Capernaum. But he was largely rejected. Remember, a large company of those who had followed him are now turning away from him, even those who betrayed him, as we saw in Judas in our last study. John opens chapter 7 by telling us that Jesus continued to walk throughout Galilee. He then takes his readers to Jerusalem, and following Jesus back into this very hostile territory. And John will spend most of the balance of the rest of this gospel here in Jerusalem, or at least in the outlying areas, in Judea, where we have been largely in Galilee. John is a little bit different in the first six chapters in that Galilean ministry than some of the other synoptic gospels would take us to see. Because John has taken us from Judea to Galilee, following the ministry of Christ, and back to Judea, and then back to Galilee, back to Judea again, and then finishing chapter 6 and into 7 there in Galilee. And this is where the Galilean ministry ends, chapter 7 and verse 1. But John does not explain that ending all that much, other than to say, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. We'd have to turn to the synoptics to find out what that walking in Galilee encompassed. Because this was a season of intense discipleship that Jesus had with his 12 men. Preparing them for what is yet to come. Preparing them for the apostolic age, the church age, the gospel age from Pentecost forward. Bringing us into this great evangelistic era. Jesus is preparing his men in this time that he walks in Galilee. The crowds have rejected him. Many have turned away from him. And as we look at the synoptic gospels and see these final days in Galilee, we see Jesus withdrawing from the crowds and spending that intimate time with his disciples, preparing them, teaching them, training them. And for our part, even here in the Gospel of John, we can see the example of Christ being the teacher. In the midst of opposition, still the evangelist, still the discipler of men, calling men that would hate him by his own love of sinners to the Gospel that he came to accomplish. In the first few verses of John chapter 7, these serve as an introduction to the Lord's return into Jerusalem, setting the stage for Calvary as Jesus is met with growing hostility, growing hatred, and eventually death. And our study opens with the recognition that in Judea, there are already those that were seeking to kill Jesus. And this is what awaits the Lord as he transitions from his Galilean ministry towards Jerusalem in the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. It is that emphasis that I hope we see throughout our study this morning, God's redemptive plan. Jesus had a gospel calling. He's on that path. And you will notice he is faithful and devoted to that messianic gospel calling. 
He will not be diverted by the crowds. He won't be diverted by popularity, the enticement even of his own family. Because what he has in his vision is the cross. What he must do for the salvation of men's souls. And as we can see from our text, Jesus is very much aware of what and when he must accomplish that divine plan. Our study of John chapter 7 is largely going to deal with the timing of God's plan that will bring Messiah that much closer to Calvary. And in Jesus navigating that plan, we will see how he conceals and he reveals his identity, his purpose, his gospel calling. We're going to see that throughout our study this morning as well as moving into the rest of John chapter 7 and into chapter 8. We begin this morning, the first 13 verses, what I have identified as a concealed presence. Because clearly Jesus, on that flight plan, on that path to Calvary, he's very careful about exposing himself for who he is and what he came to do. And this is what John shows us in these 13 verses of chapter 7. And it is sharply contrasted with verse 14, you will notice. Jesus conceals, but in verse 14, he stands up in the temple in Jerusalem and he begins to teach. He does not fully reveal himself. In fact, as we study, we're going to see there is a progressive revelation of his identity. And by the next Passover, where Calvary will take place, he's going to openly proclaim himself to be Messiah. And we will see then how Jerusalem and the Jewish community receives that Messiah. But until then, Jesus is concealing and progressively revealing himself for who he is. And I think the stunning revelation is that the more man saw of God, the more they hated God. The more they objected, the more they were offended to the Son of God. That is not a very good testimony to our human depravity, is it? The more they saw of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, the more they objected. And that's the testimony of chapter 7 all the way up to Calvary. The first 13 verses then are going to be contrasted with a turn that we will take in verse 14. And this account shows Jesus devoted to the path that God had determined for his son. Now, What's at the heart of this story is the Feast of Tabernacle, or the Feast of Booths, which is one of three Jewish festivals that all Jewish men were required to attend. And not only men, but the women came as well, but the men were required by the Old Testament tradition and direction and instruction of Scripture to attend these three festivals. The festival, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is one of those. And because of this, Jesus may have sent the 12 disciples on ahead of him to Jerusalem. Because I want you to notice in the first 13 verses, just talking about this idea of discipleship and the spending of Galilee's remainder ministry with his disciples, the first 13 verses, we don't see a mention of the disciples, whether or not they're with Jesus, with the possible exception of verse 3. But most scholars believe that verse 3 is a a reference to followers or disciples of Christ in general and not the 12 in specific or in particular. Be that as it may, even verse 3 doesn't tell us that the disciples were with Jesus. So it may well be that Jesus is alone, that the disciples have already gone to the feast in Jerusalem because that was what was required of the Jewish men but we're simply not told. John just does not tell us where these guys were. But it would be part of the plan of secrecy and concealment that perhaps they were not with Jesus at the moment that he traveled to Jerusalem. Whatever the case, we can see from our text that Jesus is very mindful of the divine timetable that he was on, a timetable that was approaching its final moments. And we'll see that in our study this morning. Of interest to John's gospel, whose purpose, again, is writing, was to bring people to believe in the Christ of Scripture, is the unbelief found in the Lord's biological family and the details leading up to his return 
to Jerusalem from Galilee. And this is where we're going to begin. The first five verses, as the family of Jesus, the brothers of Christ, challenge him. John begins by telling us that Jesus had remained in Galilee as long as the plan of God would permit, because Jesus knew full well the intention of the Jews in Judea to kill him. Without a doubt, then, Jesus did not return to Judea until the time was right. John would have his readers recall, I think, back in chapter 5, that Jesus had healed that invalid man by the pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem and the big stir, the big commotion that that caused because Jesus did the miracle on the Sabbath. And it broke the Jewish tradition. The Jews then confronted Jesus there in Jerusalem. And Jesus identified his unity with the Father, and they considered that blasphemy. So they intended all the more. It says back in chapter 5, there in Jerusalem, they intended all the more to kill Jesus. So we already know the lay of the land in Jerusalem before Jesus goes back there in chapter 7. And when they do uh, hear of the festival, when the Jews are aware that travelers are coming in, you will notice they're searching for him. They're looking for him. And they still have an intent to put him to death. And therefore, Jesus moves very carefully and covertly back to Jerusalem so as not to advance the plan of God ahead of its time. The occasion for the Judean visit is the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, it's even referred to as the Feast of Ingathering. Now, in our previous study from chapter 6, if you go back to chapter 6 and look at verse 4, you remember that the time of the Galilean feeding of the 5,000 was very near Passover. Passover occurs in spring. It's during our month of April. The Feast of Booze took place at the end of the fall harvest season, which would be in our months of September, October, largely October. And because of this, we know that according to verse 1, Jesus had been walking in Galilee with his disciples, teaching and training them for about six months before John takes us into Jerusalem for the celebration of this Jewish holiday. This means that at this point, as Jesus returns to Jerusalem, he's about six months away from the cross. His sights are clearly set on where he must go and what he must do. The Feast of Booths commemorated the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. And as the, the children of Israel were led by Moses to freedom, remember they set up temporary shelters or booths or tabernacles or tents. And within this view, the Feast of Booths involved the setting up of those displays on the rooftops, in the streets, in the alleyways, and the surrounding areas outside of Jerusalem. This feast is said to be the biggest celebration in the Jewish calendar year, even more than Passover. It was a time of great joy and celebration and decorations, if you will. I liken it a little bit to our Christmas celebration, which is filled for us as believers with great joy. And we put up lots of decorations, oftentimes that have some significance or meaning in regard to Christ's birth. So you can kind of picture what's going on here in Jerusalem during this feast. They're setting up these shelters, probably sleeping in them. There's a lot of joy. There's other things that are taking place throughout this seven-day celebration week. And there was an eighth day that brought everything to a close. But during this celebration, they also recognized through this ritual with the, the dipping of water and bringing it to the temple, it represented the striking of the rock in the desert, which brought water forth and supplied life to the people of Israel in the desert. There was another ritual that involved light and lighting of the candles or the, the lanterns in the temple which signified Christ going on before the children of Israel in a pillar of fire by night. There were lots of these celebrations and much joy in this one week of feasting, the Feast of Booze. And because of all of this, this festival is considered the most joyous of all the Jewish festivals and was probably the most popular of them. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place in the spring. 
There was a second feast of weeks or harvest that took place in the middle summer months when the grain harvest had come in. Those were the other two Jewish festivals. But the most festive and joyous was the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Now some scholars have pointed out that within these three festivals, it follows the progression of God's plan of redemption down through history, beginning with Passover and the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God. Second would be the Feast of Weeks, or the harvest of summertime celebration. And this would represent from Pentecost forward the harvest of souls, a harvest that is ongoing to this day, but the full harvest is not yet. And this would be the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the season, when all of the fruits have been brought in from the harvest. This is now a joyful time of celebration. This is a picture of the future. And in fact, in Zechariah chapter 14, you will see the Feast of Tabernacles mentioned in connection with the millennial reign. So there is something of a, a picture here of our redemption beginning with the cross, the Passover, and moving to the time of the gospel with the Feast of Weeks and ending with the great ingathering of the full harvest of souls of men captured by the blood of Christ. All Jewish men were expected to attend these three festivals in Jerusalem, which likely was what initiated the conversation between Jesus and his brothers. In the context of John's gospel, the Lord's brothers were no doubt aware of the mass defection that had just taken place as described in John chapter 6. Obviously, his brothers are there nearby with Christ in Galilee because here they are having a conversation with him. And the challenge by his brothers was perhaps another way of saying, well, you haven't had much success in here in Galilee. These crowds have just left you. You're, you're following your disciples. They're gone. Perhaps you're going to have better luck if you take your ministry down to Jerusalem. And what better place to do it than at the time of the feast when all of the people are gathering together in this joyful celebration. Maybe you need to go down there. And see if your story sells. Now because Jesus was not fathered by Joseph, the brothers of Jesus were actually his half-brothers. They shared the same mother, but Jesus was not fathered by the same man, as were his siblings. The names of these brothers are given to us in Matthew 13 and verse 55, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Now we're familiar with James and Jude because they wrote epistles that bear their name. James is considered the leader of the church of Jerusalem in Acts. So we know that later they became believers, at least some of the siblings of Christ did, according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. Matthew also notes that Jesus had half-sisters in addition to these named brothers. But a key point in writing of this incident is that the brothers of Christ did not believe in him as the wording of John emphasizes in verse 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. Notice the emphasis. Not even the, these ones. Not even those closest to Christ that grew up with him. In other words, the Lord's own family were now added to the list of those who did not believe. And while John observes that the Lord's brothers did not believe at this time, later they did come to believe. But not now, not here. And prior to the resurrection, the Lord's brothers, if anything, were part of the antagonistic group, the antagonistic crowd. And this was an important detail to John because these brothers had attempted to prompt Jesus to head to Jerusalem for the feast, as was expected of all males. And it's quite likely that many Jewish men and women were already making their way to Jerusalem. It is said that they would travel in caravans or groups. So these groups are already being formed. People are already heading to Jerusalem. And his brothers are observing Jesus is making no effort. He's not making preparations. Perhaps the disciples have already gone. But Jesus doesn't seem to be gathering with any caravan or group that's heading to this required festival. And we observe consistent with John's comment in verse 5, these brothers were not at all interested in reminding Jesus of his Jewish obligation for attendance. They were more intent on challenging him 
in his credibility. The Feast of Booths would be a very significant Jewish event where Jesus could demonstrate his claims to his followers by his works. And his brothers make note of that. This was his chance to put himself on display since, as they say, no true prophet is going to keep his message from God's secret. That just doesn't make sense. So verse 5 is added by John to address the motive of the heart behind these brothers, behind their challenge. They were not encouraging Jesus to attend the feast because they felt it would help his ministry cause. But the challenge has come from unbelief. There was something of a taunt here because they're quite skeptical of their older brother. And you can just imagine what the family dynamic might have looked like growing up with this older brother. No sin, completely righteous. If anything, we would say this is a peculiar brother. Now we can be peculiar in bad ways, and generally we are. But here is a man, a child, a brother, that was peculiar in a righteous way, a holy way. But generally being peculiar is going to set one at odds with those around him, and clearly that's the tone here. There's an antagonistic sense to the challenge that these brothers make that was likely fueled by resentment directly connected to their lack of faith. The brothers then goad Jesus to make himself known at the feet, prodding him, pushing him. And perhaps this would prove one way or another if Jesus would rise to the power of the political Messiah that they had in mind. Well, let's put him to the test. Head on to Jerusalem. Present yourself at the feast. Let's see where this thing goes. After all, they wanted a ruler that would take them to national independence once again. Perhaps his brothers were curious to see more miracles or to see if the Jerusalem rulers would approve of Jesus as Messiah. Since they spoke of the works that Jesus had been doing, this indicates that the brothers had witnessed or at least heard of some of the miracles of Christ. You go back to chapter 2, the wedding of Cana. The mother of Jesus and the family of Jesus was present there. Whether or not all the brothers and sisters of Christ were there, we don't know. But at the very least, the family knew. He had done some miracle working. The talk had been in the family. How did he do this stuff? Well, it wasn't from belief that he was sent from God. So they're prodding Jesus. Let's see if you produce more of these things. The brothers seemed to acknowledge that Jesus had done some miracle work, but they were unwilling to accept him as sent from God. And notice in verse 4, the end of the verse, the brothers add a hint of skepticism regarding the works of Jesus if you do these things. It's perhaps another way of saying if you do these miracles and ministry labors by the power and authority of God, if that's your claim, then do them openly before the world because why would you hide those things if they are truly of God? They understood the claim of Jesus being the Messiah, but they're prodding Jesus to be tested in this claim down at the feast, not willing to believe it themselves. And so the final challenge that they make to Jesus is that he would show himself to the world, let all men clearly see your claim. Now, showing yourself to the world doesn't mean the entire globe and all nationalities. But I think you get the sense of what's happening in Jerusalem as many people are coming from all over. And remember, Jerusalem is held captive by a Gentile ruler. So this is a very mixed culture. Even though this, this celebration is very Jewish, you can just imagine the Gentile vendors that are there to capitalize on it. Eddie Bauer was there to sell tents or something like that. But you know there was a mixed crowd from the world. What better place to show who you are? It's almost like a dare. Brothers would do this. I dare you. Go down there. Show yourself. Prove yourself. But John has already exposed the heart. It's from unbelief. A lack of faith. And while the brothers intended this challenge to be a form of mockery, Jesus did come to show himself to the world, but not in the way that the brothers were thinking. 
Jesus fully intended to make himself public. And when the opportunity was right for him to do so, he would present himself as the Messiah of God. And when that time came, he would be led through a course of events that caused him to be persecuted and lifted up on the cross for the whole world to see him as the Savior who must die for his people. The world saw it. They may not have all recognized that there he is dying for my sins, but he was lifted up for men to see. This is not the end of the story for the Lord's brothers as we do read in Acts chapter 1. Because following the resurrection of Christ, faith came. But I think this exchange should be an encouragement to many of us who have family that are not believers or who may have taunted and mocked you because you are a follower of Christ. Is not Jesus a marvelous example to us of what it's like to live in a fallen world, even with family members that have rejected the Christ that we love? And perhaps they mock and taunt. And if the Son of God had family, had brothers and sisters who did not believe in Him, we stand in pretty good company. What makes us think that in our imperfect ways as fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, that we can anticipate all of our family will believe when even the Lord's brothers did not believe. Yet because his brothers became believers after the resurrection, does it not give us hope that God may yet bring our unbelieving family and close friends to faith in Christ in the course of time? It gives us hope. We never want to give up. We never want to stop praying for them. Stop representing the gospel to them. Stop speaking the words of life to them. Because we don't know what God will do. Jesus is a testimony. He's an example to us of what it means to be a teacher of the gospel. A faithful evangelist. And we're going to see in our next series of verses what it means to be a faithful messiah. This is where we go, starting in verse 6 down through verse 10. And I say faithful Christ, because this was a man that was devoted to the gospel calling that God had given to him. And you notice in the response that Jesus gives to his biological brothers, their taunt, their challenge, that what Jesus is saying is, I am committed to the calling that God has given to me. It's not about popularity. It's not about everybody loving me. It's not about everybody accepting me. It's about me fulfilling the calling that God has given to me. That's what Jesus declares to them, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 7. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So Jesus responds to the challenge here. And the word that Jesus uses for... <clears throat> For time, I want you to notice, isn't speaking about 6 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon or something like that. This is a word for time that has a more general sense. A season, an opportunity, when it's appropriate. Many times throughout the Gospels, we read that Jesus withdrew from the crowds or silenced the opposition because as he would say, my hour has not yet come. That hour was often a reference to the cross. At other times, Jesus speaks about his time in reference to the events that would lead him to Calvary. And I believe that's the case here in chapter 7. The cross is in view. But when Jesus is saying, I'm not going up yet because the time is not right, he is speaking out about specific events before him that will lead him to the cross. And this specific event is the Jerusalem festival, the Feast of Booze. To sum up what Jesus wanted to get across to his brothers was that he must faithfully follow the gospel plan that God had given him to fulfill. They may be unsure of his messianic title and calling, but Jesus knew who he was and he knew what he must accomplish. 
He knew the calling that God had given him to do. And Jesus was being directed along that plan of redemption for the souls of mankind. And he was, a, he was not about to be baited by his brothers so as to divert from his calling. That's what man's ego would do, isn't it? When challenged like that, we would bristle and say, yes, I can. I'll go down to Jerusalem. I'll show you. That's what pride, that's what arrogance, that's what the love of men would do. But see how Christ is an example to us of men and women that also have a gospel calling. It's not about popularity. It's not about advancing me or my cause or making me look like a splendid mom or dad or preacher or Sunday school teacher. It's about fulfilling my calling. As Jesus would later say to the Jewish leadership, I did not come to seek my own glory. I came to glorify the one who sent me. And in doing so, as John 17 shows, Jesus himself would be glorified. I didn't come to seek my own glory. I came to glorify the one who sent me. And I'm going to challenge us this morning as we move forward in this study. This is our calling as well. This is what should be driving us every single day and in whatever we're doing. Jesus came to glorify the one who sent him. And he would do this by faithfully obeying the call of his Father in heaven. Men may have wanted a Messiah who would be their political deliverer, but Jesus came to deliver men from their souls, from their sins, from the condemnation of death. Giving the people what they wanted would have made Jesus so popular. He would be so loved, but it would have done nothing for their eternal souls. To hold fast to his gospel calling would bring upon Jesus the hatred and unbelief of men, even his own brothers. And therefore, Jesus made clear to his family that this was not the time or the opportunity for him to reveal himself publicly at the Feast of Tabernacles. For his brothers, they could go to the feast anytime they wanted, and their appearance there at the festival would make no difference. They would blend right in. So Jesus said, you go. It's not going to cause a disturbance. It's not going to upset the redemptive plan of God. But I will not go just yet, because my time is not here. It was not the moment for him to reveal himself as the feast too soon because it would disrupt the carefully laid out plan of redemption. Jesus then continues by explaining why this is so. His brothers were of the world. And as he points out, the world hates him. They could go to the feast and people would be pleased that they're there. They'd be recognized as part of the community. They would not feel the hatred of the Jews because they were part of that world. Their presence with their kind would not be a disruption. But Jesus was hated by the unbelieving Jewish community. And if he were to go to Jerusalem and publicly reveal himself for who he was, for who he was as his brothers were pressing him to do, the response by the Jewish leadership would be a hateful response. They wanted to kill him. And the time to make such an appearance was not now. And the reason they hated Jesus, as Jesus points out, is because he exposed their deeds as evil. And this again reminds us that Jesus was not one to water down the gospel, not to be popular with the crowd. Though it was offensive to his Jewish audience, he would not water down the gospel. The Jews held that they were pleasing to God based on their righteous conduct. And what does Jesus say of that conduct? Your deeds are evil. You need a Savior. You can't save yourself. Your righteous works are not righteous in the eyes of God. And the Jewish mindset, their deeds were good and entitled them to, a favor, to be a favored people of God. But then Jesus comes preaching calling men to repent, to believe in Him and His gospel, to turn to Him for salvation, because salvation was outside of man's efforts to accomplish. 
It called all men to repent and believe in a Savior who alone provides forgiveness of sin and who alone can give eternal life. This was and is a gospel that declares all men to be sinners and spiritually dead in sight of God. This gospel makes no allowance for man's deeds to have any part in meriting the favor of God. And we must be clear on this as we share Christ with the world around us, even our own family members. It's not a pleasant message to hear some joker telling you you're a sinner before God and you're unacceptable to him. But that's not the end of the message, is it? There's a message of love and grace and mercy and hope because God has provided the way. How sad that these Jewish religious rulers wanted no part of that message. A message of free grace, of God's love. But the reason they didn't want that message is because first they had to recognize it's not in me. There is nothing righteous in me that God finds favorable. I must turn fully in repentance to Christ my Savior. This message was so offensive to the Jews that responded to Christ with hatred, a growing zeal to see him put to death. And therefore Jesus told his brothers to go to the feast. But he could not go at that moment because the opportunity wasn't right. His time to reveal himself and provoke even more hatred had not yet come. The time would come, but not here at this feast. Verse 10 then almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Were it not for the explanation that Jesus has given to us and the Apostle John has written down for us in this gospel, we'd read verse 10 and think, what? You just said you're not going, now you're going. Jesus did not go up because the time to do so was not agreeable to his gospel calling. But when the opportunity came, when the moment was right, Jesus left for Jerusalem and it says he traveled discreetly to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, exactly how Jesus did that, we're not really sure. As I said, maybe he traveled alone and not with the disciples and a caravan following because when Jesus went with the 12, there was usually a commotion. People usually recognize, there goes the miracle worker, there goes the preacher, there goes Jesus. We've heard so much of him. Not now. He's traveling in secret. Perhaps he traveled a less traveled road. Maybe he went back through Samaria. Remember our earlier study of John? When Jesus traveled north to Galilee and he bypassed into Samaritan territory? No good Jew would do that. Well, maybe he headed south to Jerusalem through Samaria again. We simply are not told, but what we are told is that Jesus concealed his travel. He went, as it were, in secret. He's not trying to publicly promote himself at this time. But this plan to conceal himself would only last until the middle of the feast, as we see down in verse 14. It is then that Jesus went into the temple in Jerusalem, in the middle of this week of festive, joyous celebration. And he stood up and he began to teach. And we know that his teaching would, have not, would not have strayed very far from the gospel that the Jewish leadership had found so offensive. What John shows us in verses 6 through 10 is that Jesus was a very careful, a very deliberate and faithful Messiah. Faithful to the calling, the gospel calling that his father had given to him. It was not his calling to become the popular man on the scene, but to be the faithful Messiah and Savior. It was a plan that required Christ to keep himself from man's hatred and then at the appropriate time to expose himself to it. And in doing so, he was also not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the Father in heaven who sent him. And this brings us then to how the crowd was reacting to Jesus. And we see that in verses 11 to 13. And I've noted this to be a fearful community. How odd that the Jewish religious leaders would cause this kind of fear. But notice verse 11, the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? In other words, even though Jesus had been in Galilee for some time, these Jews had not forgotten Jesus. Verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others are saying, no, on the contrary, 
He leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of their elders, fear of their leaders. Even with the concealed entrance into the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus was still the talk of the town, as John shows in these verses. The Jewish leadership were watching for him. And this idea of watching is implied that they're watching because they want to kill him. These Jews were fueled by hatred, not by their devotion to the law, as they promoted themselves in doing. They would not stand for a Messiah-claiming newcomer to step into their community and preach a message declaring their deeds to be evil. Therefore, the Jews stood watch for Jesus, knowing he's a Jewish man. He's going to come to the feast. We're keeping our eyes peeled for this guy. And the implication is it's a hostile search. Others within the community, they're divided on what to think of Christ. John says there's much grumbling among the crowds. Some thought Jesus to be a good man, while others thought he was leading people astray. How would you like to be that center of attention? Few of us as gospel men and women want that kind of following. We'd love to think ourselves popular in our community, popular in our own families. But it doesn't always happen. It didn't with the Savior. The division among the people is truly the conflict that exists between belief and unbelief, between faith in Christ and rejection of Christ. And this division among the people is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus Christ made of himself. You can read about that in Matthew 10 and verse 34 where Jesus said, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now this seems contrary even to our Christmas celebration of the Messiah who came as the Prince of Peace because Jesus did bring peace to those who believe. And this peace was earned for us when Jesus bore our sins on the cross and he made peace possible between God and the sinner. But this peace is only for believers. Peace on earth? That's another matter altogether. The sacrifice on the cross made by God's Son was and continues to be a subject of contention in this world. The gospel is like a sword that divides those who believe from those who refuse to believe. It divides those who trust in Christ alone from those who trust in themselves and their own beliefs or their own unwillingness to deal with their sins. I would rather just go my own way and do my own thing. So I'm not following with you Christian religious groups, you people that call yourself a follower of Christ. What is interesting about this grumbling is that it was being somewhat concealed. The murmuring and grumbling, it's confined to little groups and a couple people here and there, but they didn't want to openly speak about Jesus. They didn't want to bring this to public attention because they feared the Jews. And the fear that the Jewish leadership brought to the community tells us much about the spiritual state of these religious leaders. Religious men had become fixed upon their own traditions and beliefs and were holding others to those standards. It's what we call legalism. We create a law in ourselves and we expect others to abide by those laws. That's what these people were doing and it caused fear. Their leadership within the Jewish community brought fear because these leaders were motivated by hatred towards Christ. And this was not a hatred for evil but a hatred for God's truth, a hatred for God's Son. John opened this gospel writing that Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. And his message, his works, his example, all should have been examined according to the truth of God's Word many times in the ministry of Christ. Did he not challenge his listeners to that? Have you not read? Have you not heard? taking again and again the listener back to the Word of God. If those religious men would have gone back to the Word of God, they would have seen this Jesus is from God. If our text shows us anything about faith, it is that which must be worked in the hearts of men by the Spirit of God. This is what John has been showing us throughout this gospel narrative. 
Faith has got to be a divine work whereby the Father is drawing men to His Son. The truth about His Son. The truth about who He is and what He accomplished. The Lord's own brothers did not believe in Him. They taunted Him. The Jewish leaders did not believe, but hated Him. The community was divided over Him, but was fearful to believe and to speak of Him. And it really is no different today. And I want to close with a statement made by John Ryle, J.C. Ryle, many years ago. It's a longer statement, but follow along if you would. What think we of Christ ourselves, he asked. This is the one question with which we have to do or to deal with. Let us never be ashamed to be of that little number who believe on him, hear his voice, follow him and confess him before men. While others waste their time in vain jangling and unprofitable controversy, let us take up the cross and give all diligence to make our calling and election sure. The children of this world may hate us as it hated our master because our religion is a standing witness against them. But the last day will show that we chose wisely, lost nothing, and gained a crown of glory that fadeth not away. What a testimony we carry. Do you see how our gospel calling is similar to that of Christ? In bringing our study to a close this morning, it is my hope that we have been examining Jesus Christ as a, an example for us to follow. In the calling that he was given to us, a gospel calling. So we have been given a calling as well because he's the greatest of teachers, the most perfect model of a Christian and the one who disciples us to walk in faith. He must be that which we pattern our lives after. So I want to close by just giving you again three of my observations from the text. And please, observations are not limited to these three. These are just three that I want to close on. And perhaps you have some points as well that you've examined from this text. This is our week for small groups. And we'll be discussing these texts. But I hope among our conversations is number one, our allegiance is first to the eternal family of Christ. Our allegiance is first to the eternal family of Christ. I think and believe that there is within the Christian culture an overemphasis on the family. And by this I mean there is very often a stronger support for the biological family of the Christian than there is for the spiritual family of the Christian. Where do you think Jesus Christ lies on this discussion? This should be evident in the dialogue that Jesus has with these brothers. And please understand, I in no way suggesting that we neglect our families or we don't give priority to feeding the mouths of our children. We are obligated by the Word of God to be faithful to God in caring for our families. But I notice in the Word of God there is a special emphasis on our brothers and sisters in Christ that the blood of Christ has paid for. And while some of our brothers did, or some of the Lord's brothers did become believers, the moment this conversation was taking place, they expressed disapproval of who he was and what he did. They called Jesus to a different path. They were hoping to divert him from the gospel calling that God had for him. And Jesus responded by saying, you guys are of the world. The world hates me. Go, do what the world does. I for myself must continue to do what I must do for my children. And that would take him to the cross where he would spill his blood for those that would be called his brothers and sisters. You and I as believers. If we are followers of Christ, as Jesus said, we're to deny ourselves, we're to take up a cross, and we're to go after him. And Jesus said, that may even be at the expense of family. You must love me first. That's a hard thing for us to put into practice. But if we are followers of Christ, we are brought into a spiritual and eternal family, and we are bound together as brothers and sisters in Christ by the love of Christ. And Paul called this love the perfect bond of unity. 
What we have as, as a family of God is a perfect love. Our biological love, it is somewhat different. Because outside of Christ, it isn't perfect. Praise God when we have believers in our families. Because then we are bound by that love of Christ. The perfect bond of unity. And whether this sounds comfortable to us or not, the example that Jesus sets before us is that of devotion to his spiritual family, even over his biological family. Should it be any different for us? This in no way suggests, again, we abandon our calling to love, provide, and care for our own earthly families, but it does mean that we are free not to neglect their needs, but we are free to be devoted to the church of Christ and the brothers and sisters that he has purchased for himself with his own blood. This is sometimes, I think, a problem that we miss in the church. Second, observe our devotion to the gospel will bring the hatred of men. Our devotion to the gospel will bring the hatred of men. It is a sad testimony of many Christians and Christian churches today. The idea of loving our enemies to them means becoming like our enemies. Far too many want the approval of the world. They want the admiration of unsaved people. And they will compromise their own walk with Christ or the message of Christ to avoid the world's hatred and disapproval. Jesus Christ continued to minister the gospel to the world that hated him, refusing to give way to the temptation to gain popularity. His example should teach us to be faithful to his message, the message of grace. His example should teach us to love the world that hates us. Is that not what Jesus did? He pressed on that path that would take him to Calvary to die for the very people that were hating him. That's how we love our enemies. We live, we preach, we exemplify the gospel to them. Our love for the haters of Christ should compel us to faithfully proclaim the message of Christ, seeking the favor of God and not the favor of men. And number three, our lives are to be planned by the purposes of God. Our lives are to be planned by the purposes of God. If we are Christian here this morning, we have a gospel calling. We have not been called to die for the sins of mankind. That was the calling of Christ. But our calling is no less incumbent upon us as it was upon him. And I say that because it is the same God that has called us to it. Jesus just shows us how to be entirely faithful to that calling. Again, he is our example here. The example that Jesus gives to us in our text is that nothing should stand in the way of the calling that God has given to us. We must go to work. We got to go to school. We got to give ourselves to the necessities of life to be sure. But can we say that our priority in life is to fulfill the calling that God has given to us through Christ our Savior? And if so, is then Jesus Christ our priority? Does everything in life work around Him or do we work Him into our life that is filled with more urgent things? Is everything in our life worked around Christ? Around the calling that He has given to us? Or do we kind of fit Him in amidst all of our more urgent matters in life? These are things for us to consider as we look at Jesus, the faithful Messiah, the example that he is to us, how he discipled his men, how he's discipling us this morning through the written word. Father in heaven, I pray by your gracious spirit that you would teach us to be lovers of those that hate us, that hate your son, that hate the gospel. There is a friction and a tension between belief and unbelief. We sometimes see it in our families. We sometimes see it in our relationships with others, our places of work, our neighborhoods, our communities. But Father, I pray that you will fill us with a great love for Christ, his gospel, and for those that need that gospel, that compel us to stay committed to our calling. 
to preach Christ, to live Christ, to be more like Christ. We praise you for such a Savior. We praise you, Father, for being a God of mercy and grace. That you would love sinners enough to send your Son. And we praise you for your Spirit that has brought us to life again. In Christ we pray. Amen.